listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Two decades ago this year, I was involved in a prayer movement of about 800, 900 college students, seminary students, faculty, and staff. God had called me to be involved in that, so I got involved, and I was also involved in helping pastors and church leaders seek God and pray around the country. It was something that God had called me to, so in obedience, I began to do that, and I quickly realized that I was in over my head. Has God ever called you to do something that you had no idea how to do it? That was me. And I was hungry for God. The objective in these gatherings was to seek God for genuine outpourings of the Holy Spirit. I was hungry for that, and I was also naive. And the good thing is that that was in 1994, and then in 1995, God did touch down with those college and seminary students in a genuine outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I, just so that you understand that I'm not blowing smoke, I was interviewed by the Billy Graham Library out in Wheaton, Illinois, and you can still listen to that recording of that interview, although it's 20 years ago. I probably sound pretty cheesy. But I was interviewed as a matter of documenting that revival that was happening on college campuses. So I'm saying that because I'm not blowing smoke when I say this. It's true that I was out of my element, but God had called me to help facilitate and bring people together, prayer movements where God would touch down and move. And in my naivety, along with the hunger, I needed to find people who had done what I was trying to do, and I was seeking them out. And so every once in a while, you meet somebody who seems to have all the answers. Have you ever met somebody who seems to have all the answers? And when you're sharing your story with them, it's like they've been there and they've done that, so they're providing all the information, and you begin to rely upon them and lean upon them because they seem to be so knowledgeable. They seem to have been in the territory that you have not yet been in, where you're going. And so uh, this was a particular person who was a pastor of a church, and as I would share with him what we're trying to do with the students and with the pastors in different parts of the country, but especially the students, the 800, 900 of them, he was providing his insight and his input, and I would take down notes and sit at his feet and listen and record what he said, and then weeks would pass, and then I would see him again, and I would take more notes and listen, and he would provide insight, and this went on for a period of months, month after month this went on, and I thought, wow, this is just so wonderful, but then I began to realize that some of his insight didn't seem to totally jive with me, and I wasn't sure what to do, and then in the, I remember being in the parking lot at the school standing by my car and talking to him and just kind of asking and passing, hey, by the way, how large is the church that you're pastoring? 50 people. He was pastoring a church of 50 people. And here I was asking him how to lead a prayer movement of eight, 900 students. And I realized this is not a negative statement toward pastors who pastor churches of 50 in size. The first church that I pastored started off with 70 people. What I'm saying is that I was seeking this person's advice as if he was an expert on how to recruit and motivate and mobilize and facilitate prayer among a group of people much larger than the flock that he had been pastoring for a number of years. And I learned a lesson then in my naivety 
that if I was going to need advice and input on anything I was doing in life, I needed to make sure I was consulting an expert, not a poser. There are many posers out there, many men and women who present themselves as being knowledgeable, as being experts, as being experienced in areas that you might need experience in, but under closer scrutiny, they're posers. They're not experts. And what I like about this particular passage of Scripture that we're looking at today in Luke chapter 11 is that we see in Jesus not a poser, but an expert. Jesus is not a poser. He is an expert, particularly in this area of prayer. You know anybody who needs to grow in their prayer life? You know anybody who needs to grow in their prayer life? Jesus is the expert, not the poser. You know anybody who needs insight, counsel, expertise, encouragement in how to pray and how it's done? You know anybody like that? You're in good company because today we look at Jesus, the expert par excellence when it comes to prayer. In Luke chapter 11, in our Father's word, verse 1, Jesus was praying in a certain place. See, this was his practice. If we've been reading and following along in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 9, if you like to count by threes, that's a great way to remember it, you'll see Jesus praying, going off to a lonely place, a desolate place, a quiet place where he is seeking his father and praying and calling out to him. This was Jesus' practice. Now, we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of them bring out different nuances about the ministry, the teachings of Jesus than others, but all of them present consistently with remarkable clarity that Jesus was characterized as a prayer. He was continually, constantly, characteristically praying. And here we see it once again. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Imagine yourself being at midnight at your house and there's a knock at the door and it's one of your friends asking you for food. You would say, what are you out of your mind? I am in bed. What is wrong with you? That's the scenario that Jesus is presenting. In verse eight, I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence or his annoying, shameless persistence, would be another way for that fancy word, he will rise up and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Verse 1, chapter 11, Jesus is praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. They've noticed this disciple has gotten wind of Jesus' private life, gotten wind of Jesus' single life when he would go off, and it would be obvious what he was doing, but it was private between him and his father. This disciple catches wind and realizes, I'm a follower of Jesus. The idea is that I'm following him. I want to go where he goes. I want to do what he does. So I need to ask you, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Lord, you're a prayer. You've demonstrated that. You're doing mighty deeds, miraculous signs and wonders. Lord, you're praying. Would you teach us how to pray? There's a sense very clearly in which this disciple speaks to us today. He speaks to me. All of us can identify. All of us have difficulty in our prayer lives. We not only struggle with praying, we also struggle with knowing how to pray. We have a two-sided coin when it comes to that problem. We, only, we, we always have this issue of struggling with when to pray, having a consistency in our prayer lives, don't we? And also the content of our prayer lives. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. And this disciple is someone whom we can, with whom we can identify And so he asks Jesus the question that you can ask Jesus, who is the expert in praying? He is the expert prayer. His name is Jesus. The disciple recognizes this and says, I can come to Jesus, who I know knows how to pray, and I can ask him how to pray. I can ask him what to pray. Certainly Jesus knows when to pray, how to pray. And if I will ask Jesus to teach me, he will teach me. If you will ask Jesus to teach you how to pray, Jesus will teach you today how to pray. He'll teach you how to pray because he knows how to pray. And so look at verse two. Jesus begins. Doesn't even flinch. He said to them, when you pray, say. Now in 1 Thessalonians chapter five, verse 17, We're taught an important principle here that you want to walk away with. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, we are to pray without ceasing. Verse 16 says, be joyful always, pray without ceasing. You might have a translation that says pray continually. The idea is that when you're at work, when you're driving in the car, when you're exercising, of course, don't pray too much at work because then you'll be praying about getting a job. But the idea is that you are to pray without ceasing. Prayer for the follower of Jesus Christ is supposed to be as consistent and as constant as breathing. It's supposed to be part of who you are, part of who I am. We are to pray without ceasing. It's supposed to be something that we are walking in throughout the course of the day. Every place we go, no matter what we're engaged in, we are to be praying, calling out to God, walking with him. We are to pray without ceasing. Now, if you're like me, you struggle with ceasing without praying. It's all too easy to not pray, to not have prayer as the characteristic of our lives. Can I get an amen for that? Isn't that true? If we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest to God, he already knows the truth. 
We need to grow and develop in praying without ceasing. But Jesus says something in Luke 11 too that we need to take note of. He says, when you pray. The implication is that it's not only to be a matter of lifestyle and practice that we are to be continually praying, but we are also to have times, moments, seasons where like Jesus, we get away. We get away from our spouse. It's good to pray together, husband and wife. It's good and important to pray individually. You need to get away from your family for a moment. You need to get away from your work. You need to get away from your smartphone and your tablet and the computer. You need to get away and you need to pray. There need to be times, moments, opportunities throughout the course of your week where it is you and your heavenly Father away together and you are praying. And I don't know how God does it, that he takes all the prayers of all the people in the world who are calling out to him in the name of Jesus and he's able to hear them simultaneously and still have personal, intimate communion with you. But he's able to do it. And Jesus says, when you do that, when you pray, when you have that set apart time where it's you and your Father, here is what your prayers should be characterized like. Here is the content of what should be happening in those times. Here's the content. This has been taught upon, discussed written about multiple times. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's not so much a specific ritual that we should be going through as much as a pattern for what the content of our prayers should contain. What should be the characteristics of a man, a woman, a boy, and a girl in their prayer life, in their private time with the Lord? Here it is. You want to know how to pray? You want to learn how to pray? Here it is, Jesus, the expert. He's not a poser. He's the expert. He's teaching you. He's teaching me. Right now, Jesus speaks, and he's teaching us how we should pray. And he begins, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. There's a sense in which there's an intertwining an inseparable connection between your identity with God as your father and your passion to advance his kingdom. The idea here is that we are to begin characteristically by identifying ourselves as his children. The word that Jesus used consistently in the Aramaic is Abba, Daddy. You don't call somebody Daddy unless you know them. There's closeness there. And Jesus is telling you, he's telling me, everybody who's a disciple of Jesus has the privilege, the right, the opportunity to call the same God that Jesus called his father, your father. You have the privilege of calling him your father, your Abba, daddy, uh, uh, calling a name of intimacy, identity, relationship, you must see yourself as being identified with not only the God of creation, not only the God of the universe, but the God who is your daddy. And Jesus says, when you pray, disciple, when you pray, follower, I want you to call my father, your father, your father is my father, because when you follow me, you follow the father. And that's what Jesus says. He wants you to call your heavenly Father, Father. He wants you to call him Father. Now, all of us 
may be, may be able to identify, some of us more than others, but we may be able to identify with the reality that our parents have let us down in the course of our lives. Our parents are fallen creatures living outside of Eden, and all of us have had parents, and all of us in our walks with our parents, there are moments when sometimes our parents let us down, sometimes they let us down more than others. Some of us have a father wound. Can we get real about that for a moment? We have a father wound in us, I had father wounds, multiple father wounds. There was a season in my life where I didn't talk to my father. He didn't talk to me. I didn't even know where he lived for 13 years. 13 years, deep woundedness by my father. And here was God calling me to be involved in a prayer ministry, to call other people to intimacy with God. What did I know about God as my heavenly father when my earthly father had failed me so significantly? I am. I am going to preach it. Because it's real. I had that father wound. And God called me, Mike, just like he's calling you, to get past your experience with your earthly parents and to cross over to what Jesus himself has given you, the right, the privilege, the honor, the calling to do. You, and I do mean you, have the opportunity to call the God of creation, the God of the universe, your personal daddy. And what you need is what I needed and what I continually need to have my thinking change because we all are tempted with recreating God in our own image, projecting onto our Heavenly Father false things about Him that are not true. And the deeper your woundedness, the more propensity you have to project onto your Heavenly Father things that are only true of people who are outside of Eden false things. And what you need is what I need. We need our minds to be reprogrammed by the Word of God. This book, the Bible, is the original weapon of mass instruction. That's what this thing is. You want to change your thinking about God? You want to understand about what it means to be his child and what it means to to have God as your heavenly father? You've got to get into the Bible, the original weapon of mass instruction. You need to get into this book so that this book gets into you and God changes your thinking. I need that. You need that. God has given us such a book that he wouldn't write if he could, couldn't write if we would. We wouldn't write if we could. We couldn't write if we would. The Bible, it is God's weapon of mass instruction. And one of the things we need is to be instructed about the true nature of God and our relationship to him. And the truth is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God is your spiritual daddy. And when you begin your prayers, whether you're praying without ceasing or whether you're in those alone times, you have the right to enter territory that only a child of God has a right to do. Not everybody is a child of God. Only those who are followers of Jesus Christ. We can't be selective about the teachings of Jesus. 
It's Jesus' disciples whom he's teaching, not everybody in mass. You and I have a privilege, you've got a privilege, and you've gotta take this privilege to heart. You have a privilege and an opportunity that nobody who doesn't know Jesus has. The opportunity to call God of creation, the God of the universe, the God who spoke things into existence, your personal daddy. And he wants you to call him that. He invites you to call him that. He welcomes you to get alone, get away from where you are at work, step aside in the busyness of life, and go meet with the one who wants to meet with you. His name is Yahweh, the living and true God, and he has invited you, not just your spouse, you, not just your children, you, not just your parents, you, not just your employer, you, not just your employee, you, not just the other Christians, you, not just pastors and elders and deacons, He has invited you as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ to call him what only a disciple can call him, Abba, Father, Daddy. And Jesus says, when you pray, do it. Pray it up. Call him who he is. Claim for yourself what I'm telling you you should claim. You have a relationship with the living and true God that you did not have before you knew Christ as your Savior, when you were dead in your sins and your transgressions. But now you have that relationship, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And know how we need that weapon of mass instruction, the Bible, to be so filling us that the truths of God are overflowing out of us in our prayer life. And what you are in your prayers with God will eventually affect your lifestyle. Look what Jesus says, your kingdom come. Verse two, your kingdom come. You know it's not possible to build two kingdoms. You can't build your own kingdom and God's kingdom, although many of us try. Many of us are busy building our own kingdom and then trying to put a Jesus stamp on top of it. That doesn't work, doesn't work. The preoccupation of your prayer life, the preoccupation of your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ must be the kingdom of the one whose kingdom will never, ever fade away. The kingdom of God. When you pray, you ask God to build his kingdom through, you ready for this? You ask God to build his kingdom through. Are you really ready for this? You ask God to build his kingdom through you. There is no plan B when it comes to the way God builds his kingdom. He's building it through you. He invites you to build his kingdom through you, to call out to him and say, Lord, build your kingdom through me. Listen, woundedness and all, warts and all, you are God Almighty's, your Abba Father's plan A for advancing the kingdom. There is no backup plan when it comes to the way God does warfare. That's warfare terminology, a kingdom, conflict against the kingdom. We fight against the devil, we fight against the world, we fight against the own flesh and our own bodies. Didn't you recognize you woke up this morning and it was still there? A few more gray hairs maybe? a little bit more spread around the midsection. It's called the flesh, and the flesh is at war against the advancement of the kingdom of God. But God's got a remedy for that. It's humbled submission to Jesus in prayer, 
where you, with your Abba, Daddy, your Heavenly Father, get to cry out and say, your kingdom come through me. Wow. That's powerful. Now, the amazing thing about this teaching on prayer, I find it absolutely amazing, is that there's only one line about personal needs There's only one line about personal needs. Isn't that just like Jesus? To take us from our known to what is unknown to us to God's known. Isn't that just like Jesus to mature us and develop? He's so patient. There's only one line about our personal needs. And how often are our prayer times characterized by, oh, Lord, we're wailing and we're flailing and we're cutting ourselves and we're weeping and we're crying as if God doesn't hear us. We're going on and on about the needs that we think we have when God says, you know what the real need is? My glory and my kingdom. That's the real need. Only one line, verse three, give us each day our daily bread. It's not give me enough today so that I'll have enough next week. God doesn't want anybody hoarding when it comes to walking with him. It is to be a day-by-day dependency, a day-by-day abiding with God. And we are invited to ask God to give us this day what we need. And this is reminiscent, notice what he says, give us each day our daily bread. This is reminiscent of Exodus chapter 16, a group of people called the Israelites. Remember the Israelites traveling in the wilderness? Remember that? They leave Egypt and they start complaining to Moses. Hey, they forget how bad it was being slaves for over 400 years. Hey, we had food when we were in Egypt. We never lacked anything. You're full of baloney. You were being told to make bricks without straw. What are you talking about? But all of us, just like the Israelites, we have spiritual amnesia. But maybe you remember Exodus chapter 16, verse 12. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. This is Moses speaking, God speaking to Moses. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. Birds, so they had meat. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? That's what it's translated into the English. Now, if you're in the hood, you would say what it is. The people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? It's translated from the Hebrew word manna. What is it? They'd never seen this thing before. For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now watch this. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, about two liters, two quarts, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, depending on how many people were in their tent. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack of it. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. This is key. Don't leave any of it over till morning. Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Lack of faith. Miraculous provision by God telling them enough for each day, but some of them didn't trust God. And here's what happens. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. 
Anything that's not coupled with faith in God will get eaten by worms and stink. Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. See, this went on. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all of the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. See, if you, if you watch the Discover Channel or the History Channel and you've watched some specials on this event and how they try to explain it away as a natural circumstance, they kind of are forgetting the second part of the story. It's not just the natural means that was secreted by some worms, this flaky substance, and that's what the manna was, because on the seventh day, there wasn't any. What, do the worms sleep during that time? This is miraculous provision. Six days it was provided. On the sixth day, they were to gather up twice as much so that on the seventh day, they would be, they'd be able to rest. The principle of having a day of rest in the course of your week is one that God gives us. Verse 24, Exodus 16. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Whether it's in the Old Testament or whether it's here through the mouth of Jesus, God wants us to trust him each day for the things that we need. Last year, you were worried about this year, were you not? And here you are. Yes, there might be difficulties in your life and pressures in your life and things that you wish you could just wave your hand and make them go away, but you know what? The Bible says no weapon formed against you will prosper. The scriptures make it clear that when you walk with God and you call out upon God as his disciple, God will give you what you need. You might not always have what you want. I don't always have what I want. In my case, with my family, with my wife, I got what I needed and I wanted. I got an awesome wife. But there are circumstances in our lives where we don't necessarily get what we think we need. But you know what? God gives us everything that we truly need. He will give you your daily bread. And the things that you're worried about today, well, how will God provide tomorrow? How will God provide next week or the week after? We're not to spend a whole lot of time going on and on, babbling with God as if he doesn't know what's happening in our lives, as if he doesn't know how to meet your need. He will provide your daily bread. He wants you to ask him, provide for me, Lord, what I need today. Elsewhere, Jesus said, tomorrow has enough problems of its own. Stop worrying. Start trusting. You can't worry and trust God simultaneously. 
That's the only mention here in this whole section on prayer, Jesus teaching us how to pray. God knew how to do it with the Israelites, teaching them to walk by faith and trust God for daily provision. God knew how to give the Israelites rest. It's thousands of years later, and he still knows how to do the same for you. When you pray to the Lord and you ask him, provide for my needs, you move on. You move on to what? You move on to the things that are after the heart of God, things that demonstrate the kingdom of God, things that illustrate a kingdom-minded perspective, kingdom-minded living. And what does that look like? Here it is. Hold on to your seat. This is where it begins to get hot and nobody's playing with the thermostat. This is where our collars get a little bit tight and we get a little bit uncomfortable because Jesus moves into one of the primary characteristics of a true disciple, forgiveness. Verse four, forgive us our sins. See, all of us want to be forgiven of all of our sins, don't we? We want a clean slate, we want a fresh start, and we know that Jesus provides it through his blood, and we come to the Lord, for example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Look what it says in our Father's word. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is spoken to believers about the assurance that we have, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. And yes, you should write that down because you will do things in the future that you wish you would not do. You will look back and wish you hadn't done them, but you have an advocate on your behalf. His name is Jesus. All of us want to be forgiven. We call out to the Lord. That's characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. All of our sins are forgiven, and we want the forgiveness, but oh, how difficult it is, and how ironic it is, and how contradictory it is when we get to the second part and we see ourselves. Because Jesus says, you're to pray and say, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive some of the people who are indebted to us. No. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Every once in a while I have somebody walk into my office and they want to be used by God for ministry. They go into great lengths to tell me about how God has his hand of anointing on them and I sit there and I listen And they go on about how they have the calling of God and they're a child of God. And I have no doubt that they are saved, but I have significant doubt as to their maturity because they will pepper throughout their discussion with me evidence that they have not forgiven other people. Some of the most passionate people who want to be used for God, used by God in the ministry, have some of the most significant strongholds of unforgiveness that it's just absolutely ironic. It's hypocritical. It's unintentional. Some people have difficulty, such as in my instance, forgiving a father, forgiving a mother, forgiving a spouse, forgiving somebody who did something wrong in your life. And I want to tell you to this day, I had the opportunity to lead my father to Christ nine days before he passed away. 
And during that season, it was as if God erased all the other things that were negative and bad in my life. And I'm telling you, with God as my witness, with Almighty God as my witness, there is no guile in my heart toward my Father, no bitterness in my heart toward my Father, no resentment in my heart toward my Father. The only thing I regret is that I wish I would have forgiven Him much earlier than I did. See, when you don't forgive somebody, Many instances, they don't even realize what they've done to you. Many instances, completely clueless. And they go on happy-go-lucky, skipping around, seeming like they're blessed, and all this wonderful stuff's happening in their life. And what happens to us? We get resentful. We want revenge. And we want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, no, when you pray, forgive us our sins. For we forgive everyone else, every one of their trespasses, every one of their sins, every one of their debts against us. Some of us have difficulty forgiving an individual. Some of us have difficulty forgiving groups of people. There's a lot of bitterness in the body of Christ where Christians are bitter and angry at other Christians. You know who's in bondage in a situation like that? Not the offender, but the offended You are giving the other person more strength in your life by not forgiving them than they need. Why would you want to shackle yourself when Jesus says you can be free? When you choose unforgiveness instead of forgiveness, which is the characteristic mark of a mature follower of Jesus Christ, When you choose unforgiveness, you are choosing the handcuffs. Nobody is hurting other than you. And I had to find out the hard way with my father wounds and my own father. And for some of us, we understand what that means. Some of you have already walked through forgiveness. For some of you, that person you need to forgive might be dead. But it is not only a horizontal issue, it is a vertical issue between you and the Lord. And even if that person is dead, you can still come before the Lord and process it and deal with it and lay it at the feet of your Abba Father and say with confidence, I forgive them. And I had to do it with my father repeatedly. Repeatedly had to say, Lord, I forgive him. Lord, I forgive him. Lord, I forgive him. See, many of us think that the feelings lead to the actions. That's wrong. Feelings don't create actions. Actions create feelings. You forgive by faith. That's right, you release people by faith. And I had to do that repeatedly with my father. Can I bleed any more profoundly than what I'm saying right now? Can I plead with you any more passionately to forgive whoever it is that has offended you and to release them before the Lord and to let it go, with, give it to your Abba Father because until you do, you're, you're an ironic contradiction if you claim to be a follower of Jesus. You're immature in your walk with the Lord. You're being stifled in your walk with God. You're allowing yourself to be held captive when Jesus says, I want you free. When you pray, Jesus says, you say, Father, forgive me for my sins, for I forgive others 
for all the things that they've done against me. I'm telling you, as I forgave my father and began to reach out to him, the feelings toward my father changed. If I had waited for my feelings to change before I acted, it would have never happened. Feelings are the caboose on that train. They're not the engine. Faith must lead that procession. You must walk by faith, doing what Jesus tells you to do, following the word of God, and the feelings will follow. Trust me, I am telling you from personal experience, and what Jesus is telling us here is that you want to be a disciple, it's a good thing. You want to pray? Central to your prayer life, central to your modus operandi, central to the way you live must be a life characteristic, characterized by forgiveness. Wasn't Jesus' life characterized by forgiving? Even on the cross. On the cross! Forgive them, Father. They know not what they're doing. Isn't that what Christ did for you? Forgave you even when you didn't know what you were doing. You know, there's things that you're doing most likely in your life now, if you're like me, that you don't even realize in the areas of your mind don't please God. There should be a sense in which next year you should look back at this year and say, wow, I don't do that anymore. I don't go there anymore. I don't behave the same way anymore because the weapon of mass instruction, the Bible, is in you. Because you're walking by faith, not by sight, not by feelings. Because you are serious about being a disciple of Jesus. And when you're a disciple of Jesus, you go where Jesus goes. And Jesus goes to the place of intimacy with his father. Jesus goes to the place where his father speaks to him, and he speaks to his Father. And when you spend time with your heavenly Father, he will change you. He will enable you to forgive. He will enable you to have a kingdom mentality. He will enable you to be a walking worshiper. It's not just something we do with instruments on a Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle. And what does Jesus say here at the end of verse 4? And lead us not into temptation. You know, in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, look with me, Luke chapter 22, verse 31, this idea of not being led into temptation, did you ever stop to think that your advocate, 1 John chapter 2, 1, Jesus is praying for you even now in the same way that he did for Peter? Look at this, Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31, Simon, Simon, you can hear the compassion in Jesus' voice, behold, Satan demanded to have you, singular word, speaking specifically to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's how much Jesus loves you. That's how much Jesus understands your need, that even though he understands how you might stumble, in the future, he is praying for you so that your stumbling is not as great or as significant as it otherwise would be if he was not your advocate. It's significant that Jesus is asking us not to be tempted. Tempted in what way? That we would, that we would go through life saying that we're followers of Jesus and not be building his kingdom. That we would go through life and just have our prayer life be characterized by asking Jesus to gimme, 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 when the real thing is, Lord, what can I give you? How can I forgive other people? Lord, how can I build your kingdom? How can I give you all of what I have? Listen, your job is not secular because God calls it secular. That's what we call it, secular job. There's no such thing as a secular job. 
Your work is sacred to God. It's either advancing the kingdom of God in some way, some capacity. You are salt and light at your workplace, or it is not advancing the kingdom of God. We are the ones who use that word secular. God doesn't. Everything you do, everything I do is to be for the glory of God, the advancement of his kingdom. God puts you at your workplace to be salt and light in a distasteful place. He has put you there to provide some flavor. In a dark place, he's put you there to be that light in shining armor, the light in shining armor, clothed with the armor of God. If you read Ephesians chapter six, that's why God has sent you out. And then Jesus gives this amazing parable about the bread. The idea is that this guy has need. And in verse 8, the word that's used there, impudence in the ESV, I think they missed it on this one because you probably haven't used that word in the past week. It could be translated annoying, persistence, shamelessness, boldness, audaciousness. Jesus says, you will be heard by your heavenly Father because you have what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says God wants us to have. You have what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says. Let's look at it. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Confidence. God wants you to have confidence. God wants you to have boldness. He invites you to have a shameless boldness to come to your heavenly Father and to ask him for help. And how does that help take place? Look with me at verse 13, Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil, see all of us living outside of Eden are evil compared to our heavenly Father. There's no comparison. And that's what Jesus is teaching us, that compared to God, we miss the standard, we miss the mark. That's why we're considered and we're called evil by comparison. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, see the idea of good gifts, he says earlier, he talks about if one of you asks for a fish, will God give him a serpent? Is God going to give you something that bites you before that? Or after that, he says, if you ask for an egg... Is God going to give you a scorpion? Is God going to give you something that bites you, something that's going to harm you? No, God knows how to give good gifts to his children. And you're a fallen creature living outside of Eden. And you try to do the best for your children. And the comparison is how much more does your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask? Look, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, it almost seems like Jesus is coming out of left field with this next statement. Hold on to your seat. It almost seems like Jesus is changing the subject, but he's not changing the subject. And he's not coming out of left field. He's leading us into waters that we need to go into. And here it is. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Listen, the Holy Spirit is not just for Pentecostals and Charismatics. The Holy Spirit is not just for people who are considered holy rollers. The Holy Spirit is necessary as a person to guide you to do what you will not do, what you don't know how to do, what you must do when you pray. You need the Holy Spirit when you are praying because without being led by the Holy Spirit, 
You won't pray the prayers that Jesus is saying you should pray. Your prayers will be self-centered, not kingdom-oriented. Your life will be about me, myself, and I, not the worship of God. Father, hallowed be your name. Without the Holy Spirit, you won't forgive other people the way you have been forgiven. You can't do it. Without the Holy Spirit protecting you, you will give into temptation that otherwise you'd be able to resist. The Holy Spirit is God's not-so-secret agent for transformation of your life. And Jesus says, when you pray, ask your Abba Father for the Holy Spirit. Ask him so that you will pray kingdom-sized prayers, life-changing, world-shaking prayers that you would partner with God in building the only kingdom that will endure forever, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that you will do things in your life that would be absolutely impossible. Forgiving people who have done things against you is not natural, it is supernatural. Resisting temptation can't be done in the flesh. You need the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? When you pray, you need to ask. When I pray, I need to ask that God would give me the Holy Spirit, that I would do what I otherwise would not do, that I would be who I otherwise would not be, that I will become what I otherwise would not become, that everything about my life would be more and more like the life of Jesus. That's not natural. That's not normal. That's not natural. That is supernatural. And when you pray, you better believe that our God, your Abba Father, your Daddy is in the business, not as a poser, but as an expert. He knows how to change your life. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.